We are going to be continuing in the book of Judges. We'll be in chapter 3 tonight. We're going to take a look at verses 7 to 11 and a message titled, A Cry for Deliverance. And so we are really entering into a new section in this book. Uh, Everything that we've covered in the previous weeks uh, up through chapter 3, verse 6 has really been sort of an intro. And I think we covered this in the very beginning of the book. But that's kind of the intro uh, to this book. And we're entering now, I guess you could call it the body. This is going to be the story of all of the judges. We'll take a look at about seven different stories starting here in uh, chapter 3, verse 7. It's going to go all the way through chapter 16, verse 31. This first judge and this first cycle of judges that we'll look at is going to be the shortest one by far, only five verses. Several of the ones later in the book will be even multiple chapters long. But we're going to see some commonalities, some some themes uh, in these stories. And really, we're going to look at this cycle that continues. And it's a a three-part cycle. And that is apostasy, and then oppression, and then deliverance. So apostasy, oppression, and deliverance. And that's going to be the cycle that the people fall into over and over again uh, throughout these stories of the judges. And we're going to look at Othniel tonight. This is going to be the first judge. But before we do that, I want to just take a look back a little bit and recap uh, what we've been learning the last several weeks Um, and what really led us up to this point. And so, well, remember that this uh, is the generation that is post-Joshua. That is, uh, they're now in the promised land, and Sherman took us through this uh, in chapter 2. If we look at Judges 2, verse 7, we'll see, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord which he had done for Israel. And if you skip down to verse 10, it'll say, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation, the generation that we're in now, after them, who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. That is to say that they worshiped them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of the enemies around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. And really this is just... Uh, looking ahead to all of the cycles that, were, that would happen through all of the judges. They would be sold into the hands of those around them. They would uh, be plundered and so on and so forth. And then last week, uh, we learned from Elijah that all of this was done as a test for Israel. They were given over to war as a test for them, not to see what would happen. Of course, the Lord knows what would happen, but really it is a test for the Israelites And he used, again, these other nations as a testing for them to see if they would obey him and to see if they would obey his commandments. And we weren't shocked to find out that they did not do that. They did not obey those commands. And we saw in Judges 3, verses 5 to 6, the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons 
and they served their gods. And that leads us now to verse 7. Let's read through the text. I'll ask if you're able, if you would stand with me as we read the word of the Lord. We'll begin in verse 7, and we'll continue through verse 11. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asherah. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Then the land had rest 40 years and Othniel the son of Kenaz, died. You can take a seat and let us pray. Father, thank you so much for your living and enduring word, Lord, and we are just expectant tonight for the message that you have for us. Uh, Father, uh, this is your message to your people, not my own. And Lord, may you be glorified in what is taught tonight and what is learned tonight, Lord, and may we be those who are not just hearers of your word, but effective doers of your word, Lord. I pray that it would sink down deep into our hearts, Lord, and that it would affect change in us, that uh, we would be uh, provoked to action even from what we hear and what we learn here tonight, Lord. We ask for your spirit to lead us and guide us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we see in this section beginning in verse 7 that the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, We took a look at that in... uh, Chapter 2, verse 11, and it's reiterated here, uh, verses 11 and 12, actually. And they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Now, they were given express commands by the Lord uh, regarding the very acts that they ended up committing. They were commanded specific things, and yet they did them anyway. Not a surprise. I have a three-year-old daughter, and so I learned this very well, Right? Any of you that have kids, you can give them an express command, something like, don't touch the stove, it's hot. And what do they do? They'll kind of look at you, this stove? And they'll touch it, right? As people, that is just who we are. That is our nature. Let's take a look at Exodus 34, back uh, just a couple books. But I want us to flip back just to see this command and this warning that was given to the people. Exodus 34, excuse me. Let's see. There we go. Exodus 34, we'll start in verse 11. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land of which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. 
And they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. And I can almost see God saying something like, I told you so. You know, I I gave you one command. I gave you one job to do. When you go into the land, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tear down the altar, smash the pillars, cut down the ashram, or else you will make a covenant with the people. You will engage in marrying the sons and the daughters. And not surprisingly, the story in in Judges, uh, it unfolds exactly how the Lord warned against, right? He gave the command. He's the creator of it. He knew what would happen. The people disobeyed the command, and lo and behold, they did exactly what he said would happen. And in doing so, they broke already the first two of the commands. No other gods before him and no idols. But that's essentially what they were doing here. And then they served the Baals and the Asherah. We saw this in 2.13. Again, Sherman discussed that a little bit. Uh, These were Canaanite uh, god and goddess won't get into it too much, but Asher was a, a female goddess, a fertility goddess, and often personified in some sort of a, a idol-like figure, maybe on a, a pole or even a tree, uh, most likely done out of wood, a wooden pole or a wooden stake. And we see Asherot or Ashtoret uh, in Judges 2 and Judges 3, really the same thing, just a singular and a plural form. Uh, and actually, the, uh, the word is used to describe the goddess herself, but also the idol or the image of that goddess. And those, those names are really used interchangeably there. And then Baal uh, in Hebrew can mean Lord or owner or master or even husband. And as we think through the Bible, we can think of many different Baals that were there. It may refer to a specific god known as Hadad, but, but collectively uh, it, there were Baals, plural, and it referred to many of the different types of gods that were worshipped in that land, either worshipped for different things or even in different cities. And there would have been different Baals based on the location of where they were worshipped or the specific thing that they were worshipped for. We can think of the name Beelzebub or Baal-zebub, the Lord of the Flies. And so we can think of it sort of even as, as a title as we look at that word Baal. And so the people had turned to these various lords or masters, if you will, and they began to worship them. And it's because they had forgotten and they had forsaken the true Lord and the true master, that is Yahweh. And we see in verse 8 a consequence of their disobedience. It says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishatayim eight years. Take a look at that phrase, the anger of the Lord was kindled. This is a sort of an interesting phrase, isn't it? It seems to kind of challenge our our core beliefs and our core thoughts of really who God is. Uh, I think we love to look at the verses and the attributes of God that are loving and, and kind and compassionate and patient, right? Those are usually the ones that we tend to focus on. That's, that's the God that we want to serve. And yes, it is the God that we do serve, We see verses like, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that he is not willing that any should perish, but that he desires all to come to repentance. 
Those are beautiful verses of the nature of our God. But here we see that the anger of the Lord was kindled. In the Hebrew, it literally reads that the nose of the Lord was angry. It's kind of an interesting thought here. But the picture and the idea behind it is that when someone is, is mad or angry, sometimes the nose might turn red. Maybe the nostrils flare a little bit. And that's really the idea behind the metaphor that's used here. It's kind of what we would call anthropomorphic language to, to try to assign a, a human-like attribute to God just to make it more relatable so that we would understand what's going on. And so what do we do with a verse like this, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel? We saw it back in chapter 2, verse 15, um, but it's not just here in Judges. We see other instances like this. Psalm 95 is a great example of this, and it as well deals with a previous generation in Israel who did not enter into the promised land. Psalm 95, verse 10 says, For forty years I loathed that generation, and said they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest." Reading from a commentary, it says, The Lord resents being forgotten and will not tolerate being replaced by other gods. As Moses warned would happen, and we read in Exodus 34, his jealous anger was stirred toward his people. And so we see that his anger is really due to his jealousy. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, says this, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. Now, God had initially prescribed this very fatal consequence for not obeying the commands for worshiping the very gods that he told them not to worship, for going after other gods because he is a jealous God. But in this case, even though that was, that was the word of the Lord before, that was the command that he had given and really the punishment that he had said would happen, he shows mercy here. There's, there's a sense where he relents on the people and he doesn't enact such a harsh judgment. He said he would wipe them off of the face of the earth, but that is not what's going to happen here. We must be careful to distinguish between God's dealings with his children and his acts of judgment in general. Retribution, or pure punishment, unmitigated by grace, is for those who are and remain outside of his covenant. They have no hope without God in the world, Ephesians 2.12. The final and permanent expression of God's retributive justice is hell. But within God's covenant with his people, which he has promised never to break, a different kind of judgment takes place. The most appropriate term for it is discipline, because it is corrective rather than retributive, and it is always tempered by grace. It can be severe, but its aim is always to reclaim rather than to destroy. And so what looked like harsh words from our Lord are ultimately tempered with grace. They're tempered with mercy. 
And I believe that we see sort of a fatherly discipline here upon the people. Rather than wipe them off on the, from the face of the earth, he is still going to punish them. They still will have a consequence to their actions, but it's going to be a little bit different. And so the command was given, the command was disobeyed, and now the corrective punishment is really given to them to bring them back into line. If you were with us, I think it's been a few months ago now as we finished up Hebrews in chapter 12, we looked a little bit at the idea of the Lord's discipline. Hebrews 12.5 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he receives." How many of us have experienced this type of discipline? I know I have. I see a lot of nodding heads out there. No one's bold enough to raise a hand, but nodding heads will certainly uh, tell the truth there. But there's an end to the means here of what God is doing. He's still working out all things together for the good of those who love him. And in this instance, in in Judges, remember, this was all seen as a test from God. That was the purpose of all of these things that would be happening. Hebrews 12, 11, a little bit further down in that chapter, says that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And all of you that were nodding your heads a minute ago, and myself included, I think we can attest to that. Amen. That during the moment, it seems not to be joyful, but God is in the midst, working all things together for our good. It doesn't say that he'll work our things together for our comfort or to our liking or according to our plan or our desires or our will, but he will work all things together for our good, and we need to choose to see it that way. Verse 8 continues, and it says, So that he sold them into the hands of Kushan Roshataim, king of Mesopotamia, And it says that he sold them. Yahweh himself sold his people into slavery. Their disobedience to God has once again led them back into bondage. Previously in Egypt, they were under Pharaoh, right? They were slaves. They were back in that that bondage of sin under a yoke of slavery and oppression. And now again, they have found themselves in that same place under an evil and a wicked ruler. And it was because of their choices, because of their decisions, because of the false gods that they chose to worship. They turned away, they forsook the Lord, and they went after false gods. And we're introduced now to God's uh, calling him the special agent of discipline, and that is Kushan Risha Taim. The name is not a real name, but it's, it's rather a title used to describe the character of this ruler. Most likely, Kushan is the actual name, but the, the second part, Rishatayim, is not an actual name. It literally means the double wicked one or the dark and double wicked one. So it'd be Kushan, the double wicked one. And it could be uh, that maybe he was the worst oppressor of that kind of time period, and maybe this name was given to those that were under his oppression previously. He came to be known as this evil, dark, or double wicked king. Notice that his name is even used twice in the same verse in verse 10. There's sort of a, a double emphasis there. 
And ironically, we see that the Israelites, those who went to serve after other gods in verse 7, on their own accord, are now forced to serve this king. And that those who did evil are now being handed over to one who we could say is doubly evil. The due penalty of their sins. And we don't know much about who he is or where his rule was or his location. There seems to be a lot of debate amongst scholars um, covering distances that would be, you know, thousands of miles. Some would say way up north into Syria or modern-day Iraq. Some say down into Egypt. Here uh, in your Bible, it'll say Mesopotamia, but you may have a note that says the Hebrew word is Aram Naharaim, and that means the king of Aram or Aram of the two rivers. And we don't know exactly which those two rivers are. Again, there's some debate about what that is. And so while the details aren't there, I think they're maybe even purposely left out. It's kind of left to our imagination. We don't know exactly who this person is, and we don't even get a lot of details of how he ruled. We don't get a lot of details of what made him wicked, what made him this this evil, doubly wicked one. But I think what we see is a type. We see a type of a person. One commentator says this, he is a type we recognize because history is punctuated with men like him. From Israel's day to our own and on to the end of time. Men like Nero, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, the Antichrist, Satan himself. There have been many embodiments of evil. Kushan Rishataim has lived, so to speak, many times. Like him, evil has many names and incarnation, and its origin, like his, is largely hidden from us. But again, remember the idea here is that God hands his people over to this evil person to be disciplined. They aren't snatched from his hand, notice. The king didn't come in and take the people, but God himself in his sovereignty sold them in a deliberate transaction one that he controls, one that he still oversees, one that he ordained. And it's this act of discipline that's really a punishment, uh, but it's very fitting, if you will, for the crime that was committed. And I would say that most of us in the room can relate to something like this, can't we? How many of us at previous points in our life, um, or maybe even not so previous points in our life, have turned to other gods? have gone after idols, idols of the heart. We've forgotten the Lord, Yahweh. We've forsaken him, and we've turned after our own ways. And in the same way, the Lord has disciplined us, has he not? Likely it happened before we were believers, but even as believers, sometimes we can find ourselves falling into a similar pattern like this, where there's an apostasy, a type of oppression, but then deliverance. That deliverance brings us back. God uses discipline and correction ultimately to bring us back to him. But yet he'll still let us go through that time of testing, that time of trouble, even maybe that time of evil or what seems like evil. We can think back to Job and the fact that the enemy was very much involved there, but the Lord specifically let that happen. And in the same way here, the Lord let these people 
get given over, sold them even, into the hands of this wicked, wicked king. As believers, we can still do that, as I mentioned. Sometimes we fall into old ways, into old practices. We go back into the things that uh, maybe we were once drawn to. But I think if we're honest, it often stems from the same thing that the Israelites struggled with, is that they didn't obey the Lord's commands. That's the core of it. When we don't obey what he commands us to do, we fall and we stumble. And we find ourselves sometimes in darkness and evil. First John 1 or excuse me, 1 John 5, 3 says that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and that his commandments are what? Not burdensome. But sometimes we find them burdensome, even as believers. But we can, I think, make a, a big comparison to ourselves and say like Israel that we were, at least at one point in time, off as slaves serving what I would say is the evil, double wicked one, the enemy, Satan. It might not be a wicked king that we've been delivered over to, but we have still been, at one point in time, delivered over to the enemy himself. And at some point, we come to the end of ourselves, and what do we do? We do what the Israelites did here, and that is that they cried out to the Lord. Verse 9 says, When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The word cry in Hebrew is za'ak, means to cry out, to call out for help, to appeal, to wail, to weep. A definition would be to make public sounds of physical pain and emotional anguish with a focus that one may possibly respond to the cry. It's a cry of sheer desperation. It's really a cry for deliverance. It is a cry for salvation. Begging for relief sometimes. That's, I believe, what the Israelites were doing here. They were begging for relief from this evil, wicked king that they, they found themselves a slave to. Ask again, have you been there? Have you been at that point in life? I know I have. I know many of you have not Almost all of you have. You've been at that point where you were, you were so desperate for salvation and for deliverance that you cried out to the Lord. And notice who they cried out to, the Lord. They cried out to Yahweh. They had previously gone and worshipped false gods. They could have turned back to them, but they knew what was going on. They knew what they were experiencing. And so a cry to the Lord is a good thing. It's a sign that at least in this case, that the discipline administered by the Lord is starting to bear some sort of fruit. It is starting to turn towards repentance. Now, had they realized their sin, the full error of their ways? We don't know. We can take a guess. But we do know who they turn to, and that's the most important part. That's the first step for us, is realizing who we need to turn to. Now, in the other stories of the judges, uh, crying out was not always a prerequisite for deliverance. Sometimes they were delivered on their own without crying out. And there's only one instance in Judges 10.10 where they did cry out and it was uh, coupled with repentance. 10 verse 10 says, Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God 
and served the Baals. But as the people cry out, God is quick to respond in mercy as he usually does. And just as he did with their ancestors back in the Exodus in chapter 2, it says that they groaned and they cried out and the Lord heard their cry and he remembered the covenant which he had made with them. And for our application tonight and in today's time, it's good for us to know that it's in, there's hope for people who cry out to the Lord. Amen? There is a hope for people who cry out to the Lord. Psalm 50, 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. Jonah chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. And finally, Romans 10, 13 for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As we move on, God has used an evil king as an instrument of his discipline, but he is now going to use another man as an instrument of his deliverance. And this is Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. We do know a little bit more about this man than we do about Kushan, the evil, wicked king. Uh, we see that it's Caleb's brother. Uh, some think that it's, it's more accurate that he was a nephew, actually, and that uh, the idea is that the next generation was sort of being um, called into play, as it were. But Caleb, of course, the counterpart of Joshua, uh, very famous. I won't get into all that story. I think you know who we're talking about. Uh, in Judges 1.13, gives us just a little bit of a backdrop. It says, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. That is the city of Debir. So he gave him his daughter, Aksa, for a wife. This man was a, a warrior. Caleb had said I, he would give uh, his daughter to whoever would capture the city. And Othniel took the call. He captured the city. He received the, the daughter. But he was a warrior. Uh, and interestingly enough, he was also a man who had not followed the practices of the Israelites who had intermarried with the people of the land because he had married Caleb's daughter. So he hadn't fallen into that same sort of apostasy. He was a man that was a little bit different, a little bit set apart, and he was from the tribe of Judah, uh, but originally a, a foreigner. By assimilation, he was of the tribe of Judah, but he was a son of Kenaz, a Kenizzite an Edomite tribe from the land of Esau. And what's interesting to note is that the Lord used him as a foreigner, sort of grafted in, if you will, into this tribe. And he had a special plan in the redemption of the people, or at least a, a partial redemption of the people. We can think of people like Rahab or, or Ruth. These individuals were used by God in a mighty way and part of that redemption process and, and woven into his plan. And likewise, it's a foreigner that God used in his plan. And almost, it's almost as if to say that amongst ethnic Judah, amongst the actual Israelites, there was no one that God found or that he saw that would be worthy to be the deliverer. But he used Othniel. It says that the Lord raised up a deliverer. The Hebrew term is Moshiach, and it also means a savior. About half the time Moshiach is used in the Bible, it is translated as deliverer, but the other half 
it is used as Savior. It's very common in the Psalms and also in the book of Isaiah. And it actually there refers to the Lord as the Savior himself of his people. So not speaking of another man, but speaking of the Lord. And so if we were to just kind of consider an alternate reading of this verse, we could say, so the Lord raised up a Savior to save them. That's the idea here. Verse 10, we continue, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan, Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that he prevailed over Cushan, Rishatayim. Now, while Othniel may have been a good choice for a deliverer, maybe based on the military conquest, maybe based on the lineage, maybe based on character, etc. He hadn't forsaken God. He hadn't intermarried and broken any of the commands. We can look at all of those things and say, well, yes, indeed, he, he seemed to be a strong, faithful man of God. And that may have been a reason why God chose him, but ultimately, he was just a man. As a deliverer, his power ultimately came from the Lord. Even the name itself, Othniel, means God is my protection, or maybe more specifically, God is my strength. The Lord was his strength. Even his name has that idea that, that he doesn't have the power, but God does. I'm reminded of Zechariah 4, verse 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And verse 10 tells us that the Spirit came upon him. Now remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had not been given yet to believers. This was, this was the Old Covenant. This wasn't what we know of today. Um, viewing the Holy Spirit as a, a person of the Trinity um, is what we do today, and rightly so. That's accurate. But back then, that wasn't revealed. There's an idea of progressive revelation. So what we know now is different than what they knew back then. Now we have a full revelation of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. But at the time, the Spirit was viewed as, as merely an extension of, we could say, the presence and the power of God. And it was always given just for short times. So there wasn't the idea of a, an indwelling or a baptism of the Holy Spirit that continued to rest on someone, but it was given for a specific time. It's interesting that even in Judges, the Spirit coming upon someone was not even uh, necessarily because of their character or, or morality or who they were. It was the sole work of the Lord. Uh, as we go ahead in the coming weeks, we'll look at Samson, we'll look at Jephthah. Those are individuals that also had the Spirit of the Lord, but it wasn't because of their character because they did some not-so-good things. But nevertheless, the Lord still used them as an instrument, and he still put his Spirit upon them. Notice that it was the Lord who raised up Othniel in verse 9. It was the Spirit of the Lord that was upon him in verse 10. And it was the Lord who gave Kushan, Rishatayim, into his hands. Judgeship is not necessarily about administration or retribution, although it involves both. But it is about salvation. The book of Judges is a book of saviors, and behind each of them, raising them up, empowering them, and giving them victory is Yahweh, without whom they would be nothing. Reminded of the words of John 15, 5, apart from me, we could say we can do nothing. And verse 11, the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. 
So we see that their deliverance ultimately brought rest. This was originally what was promised. This was supposed to be what would happen when they entered into the land. But let's note a few things here about that rest. First, we note that it is a gift. It is not an achievement. The Israelites didn't do anything to earn this. This was sheer mercy, sheer grace on behalf of the Lord. The only thing they did was cry out. And that's a great place to start, amen? But that was their only action. It was sheer grace and mercy that brought about their deliverance. We can think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith and not of ourself so that no one may boast. Secondly, we see that rest is what was originally promised to the Israelites. Deuteronomy 12 tells us that you have not yet come into the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in security. If you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 3, 18 and 20, and Deuteronomy 25, 19, also give that promise of rest in the land. But that rest that was promised was ultimately forfeited by the wilderness generation. Why? Disobedience. Unbelief. And then for a short time under Joshua, they enjoyed it, partially. But then it was lost again by the next generation, the generation that we're in now. We saw in the first couple chapters of this book. Thirdly, we see that the rest is given through a man that God chooses. God has all the power, and we could say that he could have given that rest of himself. He could have snapped his fingers if he had fingers, and the people would have been out from under the slavery of the evil king, and they would have been back into the land and experienced deliverance. But he specifically used a man here, a man that he raises up, a man that he puts his spirit in to accomplish the work. Fourth, we see that God's rest is generous. God's rest is generous. The initial period of slavery that they experienced was eight years, we're told, but then they experienced 40 years of rest, a five-fold increase, if you will. It could be figurative or it could be literal. It could be a literal 40 years, but often in Judges and a few other places in the Bible, we can say that 40 years would just be indicative of a generation. That was just kind of an average time to say that next generation would experience rest we see that the rest is concrete and it's comprehensive. The people not only experience an inner rest and maybe an inner peace within them, but they get rest in the land. That was what was originally promised. A wartime would bring complete destruction of the land. You know, society, crops, everything would be gotten rid of. But when a land experienced rest and was not in a time of war, it gave a chance for those crops to be replanted, for agriculture to resume, for new life, if you will, to spring forth out of the ground. And lastly, we see that the rest, while great, is limited. That rest was only 40 years or one generation, however we want to look at it. And it lasted until Othniel died, we're told. Sadly, it didn't have to end there but it did. 
And it did because verse 12 tells us, we'll take a quick peek ahead to next week's message. Verse 12 tells us that the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he had brought them into rest, but he hadn't brought them into full peace. He hadn't brought them to full deliverance, or we could say full salvation even. In a subtle way, the limited nature of the rest of verse 11 hints at a deeper truth. Rest can never be permanent in a world where death still reigns. And the Israelites would follow this cycle of apostasy, of oppression, and deliverance. They would experience the temporary rest through Othniel, but eventually they'd fall into the same cycle. And every other cycle that we'll look at for the coming weeks and months will, again, have the same pattern. And again, they will come up short. And again, they will have a deliverer sent to them. But that deliverer will move on and they will sadly repeat their same sin of apostasy. And I'm reminded of the sacrificial system that could never fully take away the sins of the people. There had to be continual sacrifices day after day, month after month, year after year to atone for the sins of the people. And in a similar fashion, this is the pattern in the cycle with the judges. Othniel was, we could say, almost a, a forerunner of a of judge. He was sort of this model judge as the first one, really. But he wasn't the perfect judge. And he really foreshadows the need for that perfect judge, that perfect deliverer, that, that perfect savior. See, he was just a man. Othniel was just a man living in a, a fallen world. And he wasn't able to bring permanent rest that the people needed. There was a greater savior, a greater deliverer, we could say with a capital S or with a capital D, that was needed for the people. And it's really a note that judgeship was never meant to save fully. It was a, a partial picture of actual salvation. It provided just a temporary salvation or deliverance. It was one phase, if you will, in the salvation plan. After the judges would come the kings. And they too, some would do good, but most would not do good. But ultimately, the, the king of kings, the Messiah, would come at the end. And he would be the one that would be the perfect king, the perfect judge. The Messiah, like, like Othniel, would actually come from the tribe of Judah. And so it's interesting to note that the first judge... Othniel and essentially the last judge, Jesus Christ, come from that same line. And the beauty of that is, as uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, we get to look forward to that future rest. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Amen, Hebrews tells us. Not just a temporary rest, but a future heavenly rest, an eternal rest. The wilderness generation never experienced the rest. The Joshua generation experienced it temporarily. The judges period experienced it intermittently. But the fullness of rest eluded them all. Like an ever-receding horizon or a mirage in the distance, it was always just beyond them. Always hoped for but never reached. What they lacked was a leader who could never die and could break the vicious cycle of self-destruction by dealing with sin once and for all. But again, brothers and sisters, the good news for us is that leader has come, Jesus Christ. 
And we have that to look forward to. The Savior, the perfecter of our faith, our great judge, will lead us into an eternal rest. What a beautiful picture and what a beautiful hope that we have to look forward to. A rest that will never end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just a beautiful word that you have given us. What a, a beautiful picture of salvation and really your plan for deliverance and salvation in the book of Judges. This whole book, Lord, not just this account, not just this book of Judges, but this Bible, all 66 books of them are a beautiful promise to us of the salvation that would come and that now has come to us, Lord. And we thank you for such a great salvation. We thank you for sending your son for us as the judge, as the deliverer, the perfect one who can save us perfectly, fully, and eternally, Lord. And it's as simple as crying out. Lord, that's where it starts, is that we cry out to you. We acknowledge where we're at in our sin and our bondage, being a slave to the evil, wicked one, that is Satan. And we cry out to you, we turn, we repent from our sins, Lord. If there's anyone that hasn't come to that point, that hasn't cried out to you, I pray that they would do that, Lord. And if there are those of us that have made that profession, have cried out, but have somehow wandered away, have maybe turned back to the idols, turned back to the things of the past, and maybe even forgotten the Lord, I pray that they too would cry out and that they would return to you, Lord. Today is the day of salvation. I pray that they wouldn't let that day go by. Father, would you continue to build up and encourage your people here, Lord, uh, as we grow closer to you and learn more about the truths of who you are. May you continue to build us up. Father, may we continue to trust in you and may we continue to rest in you as we anticipate that great eternal rest of our souls. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.